we'll start our new series this morning in the book of Philippians. We'll read the first 11 verses this morning, Philippians chapter number one. And here is how it reads. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats. This morning we are beginning our series, as I said, in the book of Philippians, where we are calling this series, Gospel-Worthy Living. We get that from Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27, where Paul exhorts the Philippian church to live lives worthy of the gospel. And I contend that the rest of the body of the letter is about teaching them how to live gospel-worthy lives. And so in a couple of weeks, we'll deal with that. But this morning, we want to deal with some preliminary matters. Paul is writing to this church at Philippi. And this letter that Paul writes is what is called a friendship letter. It is a friendship letter. It is a letter from a friend to his friends. One of the features of this type of letter is for it to confirm one's friendship with the other and to express gratitude and affection for friends. So let's take a look this morning at the beginning of this letter of friendship that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. This letter opens as typical of most Greco-Roman letters, with a prologue. It opens, first of all, with a prologue. A prologue is 
and introduction. This is a regular part of traditional letters in the Greco-Roman tradition. And the prologue typically has three features. It identifies the author, those to whom it is addressed, and a typical greeting. And that is what we see here in the first couple of verses of Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But I'm convinced that what Paul does here is he takes this typical greeting and Christianizes it. And friends, I want us to be careful here not to just see these first two verses as a simple introduction. But I think Paul is doing something more in this introduction. I think one of the things that Paul helps us with in these first two verses in this prologue is our Christian identity. Look at it. Look with me. Let me show it to you. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul here identifies himself as the author, and Timothy is his companion, ministry partner, and likely secretary. What's unique about this introduction is how Paul identifies himself and Timothy. He identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you that the word servant here is a more gentle term for what the actual Greek actually reads. The term here should be translated slaves of Christ Jesus. Why does that matter, preacher? Because servants were considered persons. Slaves were considered to be property. Servants had privileges. Slaves had no privileges. Servants were hired. Slaves were owned. A slave had to repress all of their personal interests and ambitions because their life existed for the benefit of the master. Oh, pull your foot, feet back. I'm about to come down your road. Slavery involved absolute ownership and control on the part of the master and the total subjection of the slave. And friends, this is how Paul sees himself in Timothy, not as servants, but as slaves of Christ. But Paul says, we belong to Christ. Uh, my life is not my own. And friends, I think it's important for us to remember that part of our Christian identity is that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We, we belong to him. We exist for him. We, we are called to deny ourselves. We, we must exchange our will, our dreams, our desires, and our interests for those of our master, Jesus Christ. Our task as slaves of Jesus Christ is to carry out the will 
of the master. And what the master, our Lord, demands of those who are his slaves is loving obedience. That, that, that is a part of our Christian identity that, that Paul shows us here. But he moves from identifying himself as slaves of Christ Jesus now he's going to, uh, uh, to, to write to whom he's going to identify those to whom he's writing. In the latter part of verse 1, Paul says, I'm writing to the saints who are at Philippi. What, 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 what reverend, is a saint? A saint is simply one who is set apart. They, they are set apart by God for God and his purposes to display his holy character to the world. Notice, friends, who is a saint? Everyone in the church. Yeah, your neighbor is a saint. The person you woke up to this morning and went to bed mad at last night is a saint. A saint is not someone who's close to perfect or, or is holier than thou. A saint is a saint because they are, according to verse 1, in Christ Jesus. What makes a saint a saint is that they are united to Christ. Christ is in the saint and the saint is in, the, is in Christ. And what is it then that makes one united to Christ? Simply faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not based on works that makes one a saint, but rather it is simply faith in Christ alone. A, a saint is not a saint because of how much they love and feed the poor. A saint is not a saint because uh, supposed miracles were attributed to them. A saint is not a saint because of how much good they do or how perfect they live their life. Uh, none of that makes a saint a saint. What makes a saint a saint is none other than Jesus Christ and him alone. So a part of our Christian identity is that we are saints. We are holy. We are different. We are unique. We are a set-apart people. So then what, what's the significance of this for our, of, of us being saints? Saints ought to be saintly. To be saintly means that we are not worldly. To, to, to be a saint means that we ought to be holy. Notice here the difference in, in how I'm saying this. We are not a saint because we are holy. We are holy because we are saints. The cause is I'm a saint because of Jesus Christ. The effect is I'm holy. As saints, we ought to live counter-cultural lives. Tell you what, I, I don't know why the Spirit just put this in my spirit. You know, I, I watch some talk shows and stuff, you know, in all the spare time I have. And um, 
They deal with cultural issues, and they say stuff like, I don't think we should be shaming this person. We just need to let people be who they are and do what they want to do and believe what they want to believe. That, that, that ain't the, our philosophy in the church. We, we ought to be who Christ says we ought to be. And we ought to live life according to what the word of God says. All this subjectivity that has entered into our culture is actually destroying our culture. There's no standard of truth, no, none whatsoever. Everybody's got their own truth this day. No, 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 no. We're going to stop all of that. We all live countercultural life. Yes, our marriages are, are going to be exclusive. Countercultural living, living means that I put my interests aside for those of whom I serve, Jesus Christ. Living countercultural life means that I don't live for my own pleasure and happiness. Living countercultural lives means that I don't marry somebody just so they can make me happy. We, we ought to be countercultural people. There ought to be a distinction between those who call themselves the church and those that are in the world. We are saints. We have been set apart by God, by our Creator, by our Savior for Him. What Paul does here is remind us is that it's not about us. Lord, I wish y'all get that. We'll deal with this some more when we get to chapter 2 because Paul's going to tell us do nothing out of selfish ambition. But consider others, even the interests of others, more important than your own. Woo! All right, let's move on. Paul then moves on to the final part of his prologue, and he gives us the greeting, verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that was the traditional Greek greeting. Peace, shalom, was the traditional Jewish greeting. And, and, and Paul puts them both together. But I don't think Paul is just saying, hi, how y'all doing? I think Paul is doing something. He says, because you are slaves of Christ and because you are saints uh, in Jesus Christ, there are some particular blessings that are bestowed on slaves and saints. Grace and peace. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. We also have the blessing of peace which comes from God. He's going to come back to that in chapter 4. We're going to have a whole sermon on peace. So then Paul move pushes us from the prologue, and now he says, let me talk about your partnership in the gospel. Secondly, verses 3 through 8, he wants to talk about their partnership in the gospel. It is because of their partnership in the gospel that Paul is now writing this letter to the Philippians. What is it that Paul is referring to when he re talks about their partnership in the gospel? I'm glad you asked. That word partnership in the Greek, and, and this is a word, this is one Greek word I want you to remember. Koinonia. Koinonia. K-O-I. N-O-N. 
I A, Cornelia, K O I, N O N, I A. That word it means to participate, to share, to associate, fellowship. It, 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 the Cornelia it is a close association involving mutual interest and sharing. To have koinonia is to have something in common. What was it that Paul and the Philippians had in common? It was Jesus Christ. Christ was the tie that bound them together. Christ alone, nothing else. Not their race, not their ethnicity, not their gender, not their class, not their nationality. It was only Christ alone that bound them together. This, friends, was a gospel-shaped community. This was a community created from the gospel. And that is what the church is to be, a gospel community. Unfortunately, many of our churches today are gospel-plus communities. Gospel plus, I'm white. Gospel plus, I'm black. Gospel plus, I'm Hispanic. Gospel plus, I'm a Republican. Gospel plus, I'm a Democrat. Smaller communities, gospel plus, I'm a man. Gospel plus, I'm a woman. These are the things that we use to unite us and tie us together. But what Paul says should, should be the identifying marker of the church is nothing but Christ alone. What ties all of us together, people who ought not be together, is because we have a common Savior. mean Republicans and Democrats can go to the same church? Yeah, when Christ is the tie that binds. Liberal and conservative can go to the same church? Yeah, when Christ is the tie that binds. White folk and black folk, given our history, can go to church together. You daggum right when it's Christ is the tie that binds. You mean Baptist? and Pentecostals can go to the same church? <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm a Baptocostal. I didn't know. I came out today. Now y'all know. Yes, when it is Christ that is the tie that binds not our worship preferences, not the type of music, not even the, the, the style of the preaching, but it's simply, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, all of us love Jesus, so let's love him and serve him together. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to keep trying. Now, in what way? Let me see if I can keep y'all shouting after I get to this next point. In what way did they partner with Paul in the gospel? we got to go to the end of Philippians to, to, to see explicitly what he's referring to. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, this is how you partnered with me. He says, yet it was 
you all. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into, here's that word, partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul says the partnership that I'm referring to explicitly is that you gave me a financial gift so that the gospel could go to all nations. And what makes this so amazing is that this church in Philippi was dirt poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's referring to Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. What motivated this poor church to partner in the gospel in the midst of extreme poverty? Paul says it was the joy of their salvation and the motivation of the gospel. Oh, I read it. I need y'all to keep shouting or you're going to tell on yourself. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of us have become so stingy with God because we need him to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Their giving, it wasn't based on guilt. It wasn't based out of necessity or obligation, but they had joy deep down in their souls. And because they had been transformed by the gospel, they wanted others to be transformed by the gospel. So they said, even in the midst of extreme poverty, we're going to give to the man of God so that the gospel can go far and wide. Here's what the Philippians teach us. Here's, the, here's your equation. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. That boy preaching this morning, thank you. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. Remember, we're saints. We're countercultural people. The world says, uh-uh, take care of your worldly stuff first. And if something left over, then maybe you can give to God. But what the Philippians teach us is that the joy of your salvation and your commitment to the gospel means that I'm going to trust God even in the midst of impoverished situations. What, what happened to my help? Paul says, because, all right, I'll move on. Paul says, because of your extreme generosity, three things have happened in me. Three consequences. First of all, I'm thankful. That's verses 3 through 4. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul says, I'm giving thanks to my God for y'all. He says, every time I remember you, 
I start telling God, thank you. Every time you pop up in my mind, I have to give God praise because of your partnership in the gospel. He said, matter of fact, my thankfulness is expressed by praying for you. Paul says, I am consistently offering up to God a prayer of thanksgiving because you partner with me for the sake of the gospel. He says, not only am I thankful, but he says, I'm also confident. There's thankfulness and then there's confidence. Verse 6, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's how I read this. I understand this. Paul is saying is that because of your partnership in the gospel, it is evident that your faith in Christ is genuine. And because you have proven that your faith in Christ is genuine, you are obviously true believers indeed. And because you are true believers indeed, I now have this confidence that that, that the work that God began in you, which was salvation, uh, uh, I now believe that God will continue to do that work in you, and it will uh, uh, keep going until the day of Christ. Paul says, I have this confidence that God will continue to work in you to make you more like Christ. He's referring to their sanctification. He says, he's going, and God's going to keep working in in you until the day of Christ. And friends, oh, what blessed assurance this is for us to know that we serve a God who finishes what he starts. Uh, he, he, He started in the beginning by saving me from the penalty of sin. I said he saved you from the penalty of sin. Okay, 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 okay. Let let me see if I can lean into this. Maybe you forgot your Bible. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned. So what all deserve is death. Wages is what we've earned. What all of us deserve because of our sinfulness is eternal separation from God. What we all deserve is condemnation, judgment. What we all deserve as guilty sinners is to go to hell. Oh, but that's not our destiny because of Jesus Christ. God has saved us from the penalty we deserve because of Jesus Christ. And saved folks ought to celebrate that they saved. Saved folks ought to be joyful over the fact that I'm not on my way to hell, but I'm on my way to heaven where I will live eternally. He saved us from the penalty of sin. But God, that's the work that God did us. But his work doesn't stop there. Not only has he saved us from the penalty of sin, but right now today he is saving us from the very power of sin. I think that's something what Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 7. He says, I want to do good, (laughs) but evil is always present. 
Sin is still working in me. It's trying to get me to go against the God that has saved me. But but, but Paul says, friends, don't worry. What God started, he's still working. Friends, this verse reminds us that God is still at work in us. He's working in us to make us more like his son. He's working in us so that we can give evidence of the new creation that we are in Christ Jesus. Some of you may feel like you've come to a standstill or a plateau in your relationship with God and you are discouraged and on, and on the verge of burnout and give out. But Paul comes today to encourage us that God is still at work in you. Friends, this ought to remind us that we are all a work in progress. And that work of God and by God is a lifelong process. And it's, he's going to be working in us until the day we see Christ. So since we are all a work in progress, we ought to be patient with one another. There's an old gospel song by James Cleveland that says, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. If you should see that I'm not walking right, and if you should see that I'm not talking right, please remember that God is not through with me yet. When he gets through with me, I'll be what he wants me to be. And that's my testimony this morning. When I make y'all mad, remember, God is not through with me yet. When your brother or sister in Christ upsets you or you see that they are not living like how they ought to, to, remember, God's not through with them yet. Now, patience does not mean passivity. What, what, what are you talking about, Reverend? Patience don't mean that I don't tell you what you're doing is sin and cut it out. Not only should we be patient with one another, but we ought to be patient with ourselves. We are oftentimes our harshest critics. We are oftentimes more judgmental on ourselves than God is. Child of God, you are a work in progress. So have this blessed assurance. God is at work in you. He's going to keep on working in you until the day of Christ. Paul says, I'm thankful, I'm confident, but I'm also affectionate. Verses 7 and 8. Remember, this is a friendship letter. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul here gives the basis or defense for his attitude and affection for his friends. He says it's right for me to have this attitude or this mindset 
about you because you are in my heart. Paul is simply saying he's expressing his deep love for his friends. And the reason he holds them so dear in his heart is because they are, here's this word, partakers with him of grace. That word partakers come from the word we discussed earlier, koinonia. It shows up again. In what ways were they partakers of grace with Paul? He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They shared their financial gift with Paul while he was in prison. But they also shared with him in his suffering because of the gospel. The, one of the things we'll learn here in the coming weeks is that the Philippian church was suffering both from external opposition and internal conflict. Paul mentions a couple of times in this letter uh, 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 that they have opponents who were making life difficult for them. So because of their past partnership and their current suffering, they were partakers of grace with Paul. And Paul calls on God as a witness in verse 8 to show that his affection for them is authentic. What are the implications of this for us today? I'm convinced that it was the quantania is what led to Paul's affection for them. I think one of the reasons we don't have affection of this type today is because we lack genuine quantania. Lack of community leads to a lack of concern. True community leads to deep affection for one another. Paul says, I yearn for you all. I, I long for you all. Do we long for one another? Can, can, can we not wait until Sunday to see one another? And do we say Sunday, from Sunday to Sunday is too long? I want us to at least have a conversation via phone text. Do we really love one another? Can we really call one another partner? If not, maybe it's because we really don't have true quantania. But let me just be very, very frank with you all. The people that eventually leave the bridge oftentimes leave because they lack koinonia. Fellowship, partnership, association. What we call today connection. Friends, koinonia should be a mark of a fully devoted follower of Christ. So then what, what ought we to do about this? Seek community. Seek quantania. But here's what you have to understand. About quantania. I read it earlier, Philippians 4.15. He says, no one has partnered with me in giving and receiving. That's quantania, mutuality. 
for true koinonia to happen, there must be giving and receiving. To many of us, when it comes to koinonia, community, we just want to receive. Be my friend. You initiate the friendship. You initiate the community. You come speak to me. You come introduce yourself to me. But true koinonia, biblical koinonia, it's, it, it's reciprocal. It has to be giving and receiving. There has to be sacrifice and receiving. Some of us in this room are not connected or feeling true koinonia because there's no giving and receiving. Some of us are not experiencing koinonia because we just won't put ourselves out there and try it. We want all the benefits of koinonia, but none of the work. Some of us, to experience koinonia, we just need to regularly and routinely show up. I'm really preaching now. If we want to be this kind of church that Paul writes about in hell, a deep affection for, if we really want to be concerned and affectionate and long for one another, we must put more work and effort into true community and quantity. Otherwise, you're going to feel isolated, disconnected. And you'll leave. What we need from one another, what should be an identifying marker of true disciples of Christ, is we ought to be able to say, I'm your partner. I got you. I'm concerned for you. I got your back. And I don't have to worry about me suffering because I know when my time comes, you got my back. Because there's giving and receiving Quantania, for quantania to be true quantania, giving and receiving means that I'm going to have to take my mask off. Oh, I can't see now. <laughs> I'm going to have to demask and stop acting like we got it all together. When my marriage is in the shambles and it's been that way for six months, what God has done is he's given us community to lean on so that we don't fall apart. But you have to be able to take a risk, a step out on faith and say, I'm going to share this with my koinonia, my, my community. And guess what? They may see me different. They may think differently about them, but that's their problem. Because they're being disobedient to God because, because they are supposed to love me. We're supposed to bear one another, be patient with one another. The reason some of us can't experience true koinonia is because we have an identity crisis. We, our identity is, is derived or created or shaped more about what other people think about us or what we want other people to think of us rather than what God thinks about us. 
And so because we have an identity crisis, we're like, no, I don't want no Koinonia because they're going to find out who the me, real me really is. And Brandon and I already told us all who the real me really are. We sinners. <laughs> and sinners going to sin. But I'm also a saint. But one day, because he's saving me from the penalty of sin, he's saving me from the power of sin, but one day I'm not going to have to deal with sin at all because he's going to save me from the very presence of sin because the day of Christ is going to come and I'm going to be with Christ. And when I see him, I will be like him. All right, I've been rough on the nursery. We got to get out of here. Community gives birth to concern. Community is the gateway to partnership. That's all I want to say. So Paul now moves from this partnership. Now he says, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Thirdly, he offers this prayer of petition, verses 9 through 11. Here it is. Love may abound more and more. That's his prayer, that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that their love would overflow. That love is to be directed toward one another. To love, friends, is to place a big value on a person or thing. And that love is expressed and actively seeking the benefit and the good of the one so loved, even at one's own expense. Now, here I come for you. What's our model for love? Jesus. He sought our good at his own expense by giving his life on an old rugged cross. When you see the cross, you see love. And friends, that's how we are to love one another. We ought to seek the good and the benefit of one another. Even if it costs us something, our time, our money. Paul says the purpose that I want your love to overflow so that you may be able to discern what is best. Remember, love seeks what is best for the other person. However, uh, what is best is not all, uh, is not, what seems best is not always the best. Sometimes there are two equally good options that compete for first place. And therefore, Paul says, I'm praying for you to receive God's wisdom and guidance to help discern what is best. And when you discern and do what is best, you will so prove that you have pure motives and are blameless for the day of Christ. And Paul says, verse 11, I'm also praying that you would bear fruit that comes from the righteousness produced through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what disciples do. We bear fruit. Well, how, why do we bear fruit? Because that's what happens. It's just the result of, of abiding in the vine. When we stay connected to the vine, we bear fruit. 
Preacher, what do you mean about bearing fruit? Sometimes fruit refers to virtues such as joy, peace, patience, kindness. But sometimes fruit means that you're making disciples. Whatever the case, Paul's prayer is that as a result of their growing in Christ, that they would bear fruit because they're now united with Christ. And Paul says all of this was for the glory and praise of God. I love the Bible. It is so God-centered. I wish we would be like that. I just wish everything about us would be God-centered and not so self-centered. Friends, we exist. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is joy in being God-centered. There is joy in focusing on God. It is burdensome to always be focusing on oneself. There is actually liberation in being a slave of Christ. I got to go. I can't lean into that like I want to. But if you really want to be free, I dare you to become a slave of Christ. Friend, are you overflowing with love? How do you know? What evidence exists that you have love that is overflowing? Are you a fruitful disciple? Worship team, come back. We should be. We should be growing. But there should be evidence of growth in our lives. Is everything we do ultimately for the glory and praise of God? I just gave you your quantum questions this week your bridge group question for the week. We can start thinking of it now. Paul is, has simply written to his friends to let them know, I'm thankful for you. And I'm praying for you. That's how we begin our study in the book of Philippians. And we study gospel-worthy living. In one sense, this is a pastor writing to his church. Here's the application from me. In like manner, I am thankful for you, the Bridge Church, for your partnership in the gospel from the first day even until now. And I have confidence in, 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 in this, that he that is doing a good work in us and through us. He's going to keep on working in us and through us until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, how I love you. And I long for us to be a gospel community where we can set aside differences and preferences and focus on the tie that binds, which is Jesus Christ. Friend, you may be here today, and you have not yet submitted yourself to being a slave of Jesus Christ.
Here's what God wants you to hear this morning. There is no freedom like being free in Christ and being a slave of Christ at the same time. And the way you do that is by putting all of your trust, hope, dependence, and confidence in Christ alone. Because you are not right with God if you have not yet trusted in him alone for salvation. And so what, the, what, what, what all of this, well, everything we've done today, the singing, the praying, the preaching, what all of this, what we've tried to accomplish through all of this is to point you to Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. And so the, 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 the call for you today is to respond by faith, by trusting in him and nobody or nothing else. Let's stand. We exist for the glory of God, and he alone deserves all of the glory.